Good morning, everybody. Scripture reading for today is Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 16. So Acts 21, 1 to 16. Turn there. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patra. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come to the site of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and the land of Tyre. And from there, the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the, be- on the bench on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another and went on board the ship and they returned home. When they had finished the voyage from Tyre and arrived <coughs> at Ptolemaeus and were greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And the next day we departed and came <coughs> to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were there staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He was coming to us. He took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am, not only to be in pri- I am not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. This is the word of the Lord. Well, again, it's so, so good to be here, uh, happy to be here um, in, in the midst of uh, your congregation. I'm thankful for the opportunity to preach God's word, and it's so great to see familiar faces, uh, faces that I, I recognize, faces that um, I haven't seen also for a number of years. Um, you know, it seems like the pandemic, you know, you can, over the past 16 months, rather than it being like 16 months, I haven't seen that person, it, it actually seems like it's five years. So you had five years of the pandemic year to, to, you know, five years of planting and not being here. It's 20 years, right? Anyways, um, really thankful to be here. We're continuing our sermon series uh, through the book of Acts. And this morning we find ourselves in a passage that uh, reads more like a travel itinerary, that is like a travel log, than a biblical discourse. And at first glance, you might say, yeah, it seems like all these names, all these sort of cities, what, what can we learn from encountering a passage that has all these names that, frankly, you know, you stumble over. And perhaps if you're sitting in your Bible reading on, sun, on the mornings, you might just kind of just whiz through right over these. At first glance, it might just seem like that. And you might ask yourself, what's the purpose of a passage like this? Uh, the past two weeks as I've uh, prepared to, pass, uh, to preach this passage, I have been asking that. What is the purpose of this passage? 
And as good Bible readers, um, as we all are and seek to be, we, we should be asking that question. What, what is the author trying to do in a passage like this? Uh, what, what, is, what is God up to with a passage like this? And uh, I, I recognize that as we look at this passage, as I've come to believe, um, as I've studied this passage, I've come to believe that Luke is answering one particular question. Uh, and the question is this, is what are the effects of gospel city transformation? In other words, how do we know that the gospel is at work in our midst? I mean, I think that's really one of the things that we see in this passage. That is the effects of the gospel. After doing ministry for 30 years after the death of Jesus, we get to a, a place in the Bible, in Acts 21, that, this, that there are a few results. There are a few tangible handles that sort of describe this gospel city impact. How is the gospel at work among the Christians? And there's two particular qualities that we'll see, and I'll share that in a little bit. But I, but I think that this question here, that is to say, what are the effects of gospel city transformation, uh, th I think that question really matters to all of us. You see, we're a part of a church that we, we share the same vision. And the vision is to see the city of Chicago transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our vision. And so if that is our vision, it's something that we've all subscribed to, that that's our vision. We want to see the city of Chicago transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's oftentimes, most of us are wondering, but how do we accomplish that? Or are we really living that out? Holy Trinity Church has been around for the past 24 years, 23, 23 24 years. How do we know that we're actually succeeding in that particular vision? And I know that question, uh, I know that matters to us. Well, what we see in this passage is something so important. We actually see it displayed in twofold. That is to say that, the, that we know that the gospel is actually bringing about change and transformation in this twofold way. First of all, we see in verses 1 through 6, we see abiding friendships. Abiding friendships. Paul and his missionary companions, they go to these particular places, they finally get to Tyre, and they find friends. Friends. What does the gospel do? It produces friendships. It produces loving and abiding friendships. How do you know that there's city transformation happening? You have legitimate Christ-centered friends, verses 1 to 6. In verses 7 and following, we see a missional examples. We see this missional sort of lifestyle of longevity. We have, for those of us who might say, I might not have friends, and I might not feel like I have friends there in that particular city. Let's look at some actual case studies of these friends kind of living out. Well, in verses 7 through following, we actually have this missional longevity. We have three case studies of individuals who are saying the gospel is so so much worth giving my life. And here are three case studies of how the gospel actually transforms three particular people. Having said that, let us pray. Lord Jesus, I do pray that you would, by your spirit, enable us to understand this passage. That for those of us who have the past 16 months have felt absolutely isolated and alone, that you would enable us to recognize that the gospel transforms us that we might give ourselves to each other, that we might have lasting and abiding friends in, this, in these four walls. And I pray, oh God, 
that you would not only do that, Lord, but that you would enable us to endure the trials, um, the pain of this world through um, and, and committing to having longevity in the mission that God's called us to. But it's in Christ's name. Amen. Well, perhaps this is your first time here in, um, this Sunday. I want to welcome you. Those of you who are online, welcome. Uh, glad you're here. Uh, but we've been looking at the book of Acts. And last week, we looked at a particular passage in chapter 20 where uh, Paul was actually ministering with and speaking to the elders in Ephesus. And he gives them a charge on how they were to care for the church. And it was an emotional uh, place. They all leave. Paul, he says, this is the last time I'm going to see you. They end up going to the beach before he sets sails. They all cry. They kneel. And it's an emotional departure for Paul and his companions. And they leave and they set sail. Why? Because Paul has a vision to go back to Jerusalem. He, he has this like sort of a stoic view, stoic view towards Jerusalem, heading back to Jerusalem. And so we find ourselves after traveling 400 miles to this particular port called Tyre in our passage in chapter 21. And, and he and his traveling companions are so overwhelmed at, um, because of the travel uh, arrangements, but they're so overwhelmed because they actually have and see familiar faces. That's what we see in verses 1 through 6, this idea of abiding friendships. Now, if it, for those of you who might be wondering, well, you know, what are really true, what are some qualities about friends? What, what, what can we learn from this passage about what does it mean to have these abiding Christ-centered friendships? Um, we really see three qualities in this section to, to kind of give us a definition, a working definition of what kind of friends um, legitimate uh, the idea of friendship. Look at verse 4. We, we see friends who actually show ordinary hospitality. After spending, after being there for seven days, that is to say that the, uh, the disciples, when Paul encounters, uh, when he gets to this particular place, he is welcomed by these particular familiar faces, and they end up spending time in their house for seven days. Um, it, quite different than what Mark Twain says, you know, that, that um, fish and guests stink after three days. Well, they say there's seven days and they're giving their lives over and over and over to each other they show ordinary hospitality they show this kind of hospitality that says you're my true friend you're, you're my true friend and I love you so much come welcome come be my guest come let me feed you come at my table come to my table come in and and what let me welcome you in this way gospel Christ-centered friendships demands that we show ordinary hospitality towards each other, that we open our home with one another. That's what we see in verse 4. You see, there they meet fellow Christians who care for them, who tend for their needs, who actually are invest in their lives. Now, I know, again, this is a really uh, hard thing for most of us after being, as I said, 16 months of just isolation, even demanded to not have anyone in our house, uh, all these kinds of things. And so it, for those of us who are coming out of the pandemic, I want to just encourage us to say, hey, when's the last time you've had someone at your house? When's the last time you've had someone at your table? When's the last time you welcomed someone and prepared food to serve and to show hospitality? Well, here they are. Let's show hospitality to one another. That's what true Christ-centered abiding friendships is all about, showing hospitality. Verse 4. Not only that, but notice what we see in verse 4, at the end of verse 4. It, they give spirit-filled counsel. 
They give spirit-filled care for Paul. Notice what it says there in verse 4. They say, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. You see, what we recognize here is that these these Christians here, they recognize that Paul is going to face some serious uh, challenges coming up in, Jer- in Jerusalem. N- notice what, is, what they're not saying. This is not a prohibition to go to Jerusalem, but in fact, it's a precaution. It's actually saying, Paul, we need you to be very careful when you get to them. But they were saying it through the Spirit, which obviously has a spiritual component to this. They didn't want him to go to Jerusalem. The Spirit told them, what was going to happen in Jerusalem. The thing, though, is that Paul knows what was going to happen in Jerusalem. He already knew what was going to happen. Um, we noticed back in, um, back in chapter 20, verse 22, uh, when Paul was speaking to the elders in Ephesus, um, that, he, that he actually said that he felt constrained or bound. Look at verse 22 of chapter 20. He was constrained or bound by the spirits. Uh, to go to Jerusalem because it was there that he must suffer and face imprisonment and infliction. You see, Paul knew why he had to go back to Jerusalem. Not only that, but we know that at the beginning when Paul is converted and when he's blind, the Spirit of the Lord appears to Ananias, who was one of the guys who validates Paul as a legitimate individual. And and God says to Ananias in chapter 9, he says, Go and confirm to this person that Paul is legitimately called by God for he will be a servant to the Gentiles and I will show him how much he must suffer for the gospel. Even at the outset of his ministry, Paul, his mission was one in in which he gave himself to the Gentiles, but he knew that it was one that entailed suffering. Suffering. Gospel ministry is not for the faint heart. It's not a cakewalk. It's not about comfort and luxury and ease. Gospel ministry is one that demands that we give our full life to this thing. And it demands a radical living out the gospel in this way. True friendships are so in tune with the spirit of the Lord that you are compelled to share what the word of the Spirit says to you, to them. And to not do so is not loving them. And to not do so is not true Christ-centered friendship. And what does that mean for those of us who want to be friends to our fellow Christians? It means that we are in tune with the working of the Holy Spirit. It means that we are in tune with with what the word through the Spirit is actually saying to us, for them, to them. See, the disciples were simply just stating what was going to happen to him about fulfilling his suffering. It wasn't bad luck. It wasn't that Paul was putting himself in danger. It was about God's sovereign will and plan for his life. And he was, the God was orchestrating his way that he would suffer, that he would die in this particular way. Because as Paul puts it in Galatians 6, 17, for I bear the marks of Christ in my body. In my body, I bear the marks of Christ. Now, I want you to know that true friendships not only show hospitality, they open their homes towards each other, they have a spirit-filled care for each other, 
thirdly, and look at what we see in verses 5 and 6, there is deep, heartfelt prayer for each other. They legitimately pray with one another. What, kind of, what, what are Christ-centered friendships all about? They open their home for one another. They have a spirit-filled care and counsel for each other. And they genuinely pray for one another. Verses 5 and 6. They, they go, as, they, if they've, as they've been there for five, five days, they leave the city. And they were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board to ship, and they returned home. They genuinely had this heartfelt prayer for one another. And again, it's similar to what we see at the end of chapter 20, where Paul was kneeling down, weeping and praying with the elders there. You can imagine the same sort of scene played out here. Uh, this is emotion. This, this is emotion, no. Which means that being a friend, friend is not being indifferent. It's not being apathetic. It's not being lazy. Being a friend demands emotion. It, mean, it, it means that you give yourself emotionally to each other, to one another. It means that we're in it for each other in this particular way. If we want to see gospel transformation, then we ought to continue to become friends with each other. That is one of the byproducts of, gospel, of the gospel actually taking root and bearing fruit in our lives, that we legitimately say, I want to be their friend. I want to extend hearts uh, of prayer in this particular way. A number of years ago, my wife and I, we were, we were enduring the reality that we could not have children of our own. And so for five years, we tried to have children. Five years, we cried. Five years, we tried to have children. And for the last few months of those five years, we invested a lot of money to try to do a few procedures to have children. Invested a lot of money. And in the end, no kids, now, no pregnancy. And I was so depleted emotionally. I was depleted financially. And I told my wife, Megan, for the next month, do not bring up the idea of children again. It hurts too much. And at the close, nearly at the close of that month, we got a phone call from a dear friend someone that was in our church. And they said, Oscar, we've been praying for you guys. We want to just tell you that we believe that the Spirit of the Lord is telling us to give you guys financial support so that you can move towards adoption. How do we care for each other? We're in tune with the work of the Spirit. And we say, I love them and I'm going to care for them, and I'm going to meet their needs in this particular way. You see, true Christ-centered friendship, they show hospitality. They care for each other, and they pray for one another. Have you found any true friends? Are you being a good friend? Again, what we know to be true about this past year is that we've grown more and more isolated, perhaps even more and more recluse. But do you believe that at this particular church, in this particular sanctuary, in this particular place, friends' needs can be met through you extending your life to them? When speaking about friendships, C.S. Lewis wrote this in his book, For Loves. He says, in friendship, we think we have chosen our peers. In reality, a few years' difference 
and dates of our births, a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of one university instead of another, the accident of topic being raised or not raised at first meeting. Any of these chances might have kept us apart. But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of ceremonies has been at work, Christ, who said to the disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. The friendship is not a reward of our discriminating and good taste and finding one another out. It is the instrument by which God reveals to each of us the beauties of the other. God has chosen you in this particular season of your life to say, I can choose one another. And in showing to be friends, legitimate friends, Christ-centered friends, you're showing the beauty of Christ to the world. Well, the first byproduct of Gospel City Transformation is having abiding friendships. The second one that we see in verses 4 to 17 is, uh, is missional longevity. And here are three case studies for those of us who perhaps are, are, are stoic in our reading of the Bible. Perhaps we might say, yeah, but I'm a realist. I mean, show me some real people. Well, there are some real people here in verses 6 through 17, 7 through 14 that actually legitimately live out what the gospel means. And the first one that we see is there in verse 8. It says this, On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven in staying with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, it's been about 20 years since we first met Philip in Acts chapter 6. Uh, Philip was chosen by the seven, as it says there in, in our passage. But he was one of the original seven who was chosen by God elected by the church leaders, by the church, to care for the needs of the widow. We know the quality of the character of the man. He was spirit-filled, as it says back in chapter 6. He was spirit-filled. He was a man of character. Um, he, he was a man who demonstrated faithfulness in ministry. That was 20 years ago. And now what we have in this chapter, verse 21, is a vignette of someone who's lived 20 years and doing faithful ministry. And what do we get from a man who's done faithful ministry? We see his children in ministry. We see his children giving their lives for the gospel. Here's another interesting thing about this, you guys, <laughs> that I found so beautiful in the passage. Philip was chosen with Stephen. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is the first martyr of the Christian church. He dies. And who's standing there approving the death of Stephen? Paul. Paul is there giving approval. And so when Philip welcomes him in his house, He forgave him. True friendships forgive. The gospel calls us to forgive. Philip looks at Paul, perhaps not seeing him since that time. 
Paul, look, look at my daughters. They're in ministry. Look at what the gospel has done in my life. I'm able to forgive. Philip, the evangelist. Philip, who's given his life and says, I'm in it. I'm, I'm in this thing for longevity's sake. I will not be faithless. I will not falter. I'm committing to endure all particular trials because that's what the gospel calls me to do. He sees, he hears, Philip perhaps hears of Stephen's murder by the religious leaders and Paul stands there and he welcomes, he walks into Philip's house and there's no like need for backstory. There's no need to say, Philip, you remember me, Paul, uh, I was there when they were stoning him. Also notice again, as I mentioned earlier, but what's beautiful about Philip is that he's got four daughters in ministry. They were prophetess. They spoke on behalf of God to God's people. They, they were legitimate individuals who were serving God's people through the word. And they were giving themselves in the word. And they were speaking on behalf of God to his people. I'll add that uh, to be a prophet, though, is not a pastor, just, just to be particular and specific. Uh, they function outside the norms of covenant community of pastoral office. Um, that's not what we see in this passage. Uh, but we do see what is so beautiful about Philip is the, is the effect of how the gospel goes from generation to generation. And what we see in this passage is a legitimate work of city transformation. It, it, it takes root not only the lives of the first generation who are ministering, but actually the second generation who have endured city trials. For those of us who have children and who live in the city, yeah, we don't have yards. <laughs> we, we have small yards. We have to walk a few blocks to get to the playground. Our children don't go to the best schools, perhaps, in the neighborhood. We have all the realities of the social systemic reality of living in a city that is actually broken. But can we and do we believe that God is at work and can do a miraculous work in transforming their lives even as he's affecting change in our lives? Philip the Evangelist, who demonstrates missional longevity. Secondly, we have Agabus the prophet in verses 10 to 12, who at the same time is someone who demonstrates faithfulness and longevity. We didn't, the first time that we saw him in Acts was in Acts chapter 11, where he prophesies to the Christians that there was a severe famine that was happening. Again, 20 years prior to this moment. And in chapter 11, in verse 27 to 30, uh, Agabus prophesies and says, there's a severe salmon that's gonna, uh, famine that's going to happen. Uh, we should probably care for the churches in this particular way, and we should meet their needs in this way. And so while Paul was resting here in Caesarea, the prophet Agabus comes, and he gives them a second warning. It's a message from the Lord. And he takes this idea, this, he takes uh, Paul in this way, he grabs a hold of him, he grabs his girdle and his belt, and he tells them that just in the same way that I am, so, so he gives him a word picture, and he gives him a physical demonstration of what's going to happen to him in the next passage. We'll get there next week. But in the next passage, we recognize that Paul himself will be arrested. And he says, Agabus says, 
I'm, I'm going to prophesy in the spirit and tell you what's going to happen. You see, missional longevity demands that you're honest, that the work himself, that the, the spirit of himself is working in and through you in this way. And notice Paul's response here in verses 13 to 14. Paul replies with a surprising remark. Uh, he's the third case study here. Because at one level, if you were told to be careful, to not go to that place, to not go to that block, we, most of us, would, have, would say, okay, I'm not going to go to that block. That's pretty dangerous over there. But what we see in Paul is something that we've seen elsewhere. And we saw it in the person of Jesus. But notice what Paul says um, in verses 13 to 14. He says, when Paul answered, uh, when, then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. You see, the Apostle Paul is able to, res- to respond by saying, this is not my life anyways. I've been called by God to be a servant of God. And when you're called as a servant of God, it's not your life. You see, elsewhere, Paul says in, in Galatians chapter 2, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. The life I live in Christ I died to myself. He's died. He's died. Every desire, every ambition is all dead. And he seeks to live at the will, at the pleasure of God. He gives himself in this way. Why? Because the mission demands our lives. Now, for those of us, for those of us who, must be, who might be wondering, what, what does missional living mean? Or what is this missional longevity all about? A uh, pastor um, named Jeff Vandersil, he clarifies this in his, one of his books, and he says this, I define missional living as being continually sent disciple makers who live everyday life with gospel intentionality so we might both show and tell others what worship of Jesus looks like in the everyday stuff of life. When we see disciple making as primarily done in a classroom or event, we end up leading others to see following Jesus as a study or a program instead of an all-of-life kind of thing. The scripture is clear. We are called to see people grow up in every way into Christ who is the head. And in every way means everything. God intends to bring about the knowledge of his glory known everywhere. And the hope of that taking place is Christ at work in us and through us in everything we do. Missional living says, I am at the pleasure of God. My life is at the pleasure of him. And I, my life is in gratitude to what he's done. And so making friends is not a command and it's not a duty. It's a response to what the gospel has done. The gospel, works in, the gospel works in our lives, and out of gratitude to what Christ has done, his performance on the cross, he secures our, our ability to do what the scriptures command. And we do that only through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, we've seen the effects of gospel transformation is through friendships and longevity. But what about if we don't want to commit to having these two qualities? 
just because it's just so hard. We've been in, I've been in the city for the past 21 years. I've been at this church for the past 21 years. We've seen friends come and go. And oftentimes, when they leave, you say to yourself, for a glimpse, I just don't want to do that again. I don't want to get hurt by them leaving. Is it really worth it? Should I open my home? To, should, I, should I show hospitality to not be welcomed in their home? Again, C.S. Lewis has an answer for us. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrought and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up in a safe, the casket in, in a coffin of your selfishness. But in the casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, unpenetrable, unredeemable, irredeemable. To be, to, to, sorry, to love is to be vulnerable. What he's saying here is he's saying to be friends who love each other is to recognize that we ought to be vulnerable. And our hearts were designed to be this particular way. We will face dis disappointments, frustrations in our friendships. But it's so much better than just locking up in a coffin, locking it up and saying, ah, I just can't do it again. Why? Because what Paul says, he says, what are you doing? You're breaking my heart. Why? Because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he sits at a garden and he weeps out, and his, his tears are like drops of blood. And he's able to say, Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. And he weeps because he knows that in his life, in his death, he will enable friends to, be, to become secure and sealed for the journey, for the quest. And for the quest of saying that perhaps they might not come back. You see, we just saying, your love, it brings us grace, it gives us, you are holy, we can't live without your love. Jesus says this, right before he's betrayed, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends, for you, all of you, that I've heard my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in my father's name, it will be given to you. These things I command you, so that you will, no long, you will love one another. Jesus calls us to love one another, to have abiding friends, and to endure with longevity for the ministry. So may you give yourself 
to the work of this particular ministry, the next five, the next 10, the next 20 years. This is not our home. Murphy wasn't our home. God will provide a place. God will meet our need. But as we wait, may we give ourselves to each other in this way. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your word, and we pray, God, that you would open our hearts, that we would open our hearts to each other, and that we would become vulnerable to one another, that we might pray, earnestly pray for each other and give our lives to one another in this way. Do this, Lord, for our good and for your namesake. Amen.